Hello and welcome, ladies and gents, to Middle Market Musings, a podcast dedicated to the people and ideas of the middle market. We're delighted that you've chosen to join us today. My name is Charlie Gifford of New Heritage Capital. And I'm Andy Greenberg of Greenberg Variations Capital. Today we're doing something fun and different. The Delaware Private Markets Club invited Charlie and me to be their guests. This is a terrific group of investment-minded students at the University of Delaware. Charlie and I were delighted to get to spend some time with them. This episode is brought to you by our sponsors, New Heritage Capital and Greenberg Variations Capital, along with our media partner, Private Equity Professional Digest. We wouldn't be anywhere without them. We hope you enjoy this episode. We are lucky to be joined by two of our smartest and funniest speakers that we've had. Charlie Gifford, a senior partner at New Heritage Capital, and Andy Greenberg, CEO of Greenberg Variations Capital, and formerly GF Data before he sold it uh, about a month ago, Andy, uh, if that's correct. He cleared $850 million. You can ask him about it later. <laughs> we're, we're very lucky to have you both with us today. Uh, from my understanding, you guys both wanted to interview each other, which I am very much looking forward to before opening it up to some general questions. So I'll let the two of you take the floor. Yeah, that really seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, Keaton, thank you so much for uh, having us here. It is a pleasure to be here uh, with Charlie. He is someone who basically lives for me to say something that nice about him. Um, it may or may not happen. We'll, we'll see. So, Charles, as anyone who's listened to our podcast for more than 45 seconds knows, I'm a, I'm a little bit older than you. Not as much as you suggest. But there was a time way back when, when you were a college student at, uh, at Denison. Correct. If I'm not mistaken, in Ohio. I thought it would be interesting uh, to start with Charlie Gifford as a college student. You know, what were you into? And was the path to being a partner in a private equity firm a direct path or a roundabout one? Uh, roundabout to be kind. I, I don't think that I can share. I, you guys probably. I mean, college is... Uh... I dated my, um, I married a girl that I went to undergrad with, but we never dated in college because she told me that I wasn't really ready for prime time. So I had to kind of like figure a lot of other stuff out uh, before we could think about settling down. Um, I was an American history major. I had no idea what I wanted to do. In fact, I went to my father after I graduated and I said, um, I think what I want to do is I want to backpack through Asia for a year. He looked at me like, why do you want to do that? I said, because uh, I had wanderlust. I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. And he said, great, go for it. You know, you're going to probably use up a lifetime worth of vacation days, but you're young. And, uh, you know, this is amusing to think. No cell phones, right? We're basically backpack, rented motorcycles through all of Asia, came back to Boston uh, 12 months later. I think relatively a little bit more mature, a little bit greater perspective. Um, I certainly didn't know that I was going to, you know, get into private. I didn't really even know what private equity was. Mind you guys, this is in uh, what is it, 1992, well, when Andy was 25. Uh, actually, it was probably older than that. I was being sarcastic. Um, the uh, I know he's like actually I was 28. As it relates to career path, there's. Um, you know, the try if for those interested in private equity, you know, the I think the most road traveled is, you know, the consulting or the investment banking route 
two years in corporate finance program or leverage finance, and then ideally, you know, getting an, a look at a private equity firm for two years, go back to business school, leverage that, and see where that goes from there. Um, but it's um, back in the day, there was no clearly delineated path. I got a job at a, co- a place like, called Smith Barney on Wall Street, did that for a couple of years, worked for a startup because I got burned out in doing that. I always knew that I wanted to probably get back into finance, but I worked for a startup for a couple of years, then went to business school and was lucky enough to get an internship in between years at business school at our aforementioned predecessor fund. But that's kind of like, that. that, that is uh, truncated uh, just to give you a sense for my path, because again, no, no path is right. It's more about kind of like what you're interested in and what you want to, what excites you. Um, you know, I, there are a lot of private equity funds out there that just say, you know, we'd rather hire somebody that is, has a different work-life experience. We don't want just another consultant or investment banker who sees that, you know, is a hammer and sees everything as a nail. Um, so that type of creativity, there are a lot of people that will say that's going to be a better, a better all-around athlete than just hiring somebody that's done two to three years at M&A on, on a Wall Street bank. Charlie, I got to ask, what was the scouting report on Charlie Gifford as a young Smith Barney analyst? Uh, not a lot of wheels, slow in the uptake, you know, not a lot of, uh, you know, stack of dimes when, jo- oh, you mean you're talking about work. I thought you talking about like sports. Um, it was uh, a hard worker, a little bit of a smart ass, which I know will shock most people, um, but uh, had, had some intellectual horsepower, just needed to kind of apply himself and, you know, it all turned out. So let me now turn the tables given the fact that I've prepared zero questions for you, Andy. Um, so tell me, when you were born in the 30s, what was it like with growing up in houses without color TV? Just kidding. So um, why don't you, you know, what's one thing that's interesting about Andy, I think that's different, what I was sharing about a little bit of very background. Andy, you did work, um, so spend some time in state government, right? I did. And how did that experience shape you into the man that you are today? It, it actually, it's funny to say about time in government, but it focused me on business. Uh-huh. I started off as a lawyer, went to law school back in the 80s when uh, there was much more of an idea than there is today that law is kind of a, a good general background. You know, and I think now there's more of an idea that, that if you want to be a lawyer, you should go go to law school. So after a couple of years in law practice, I had the opportunity to get into the Pennsylvania state government and at a young age ended up um, as the, uh, the secretary of commerce for the state, which was a lot of fun, a very kind of head spinning introduction to the political world. But I found that I actually liked the part of the job that had to do with providing financing to businesses. And that, you know, after eight years of being the state government for as as secretary, I was really ready to uh, not go back into law practice, but to get into corporate finance. Yeah. I just, a sidebar for all of our, um, for you guys on the phone. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but being a Bostonian, oftentimes when I travel, I meet people and I say, for Boston, and people always say, oh, I went to school in Boston. Well, not Boston, but Cambridge. But they never say I went to Harvard or I went to Harvard Law. They just want you to ask them that. They always like sprinkling in. Oh, so where did you go to school? I usually say I don't always lead the jury and say Harvard. I'm like, oh, did you go to 
a lesser school in and around Boston. But Andy, I'm throwing him a bone. He didn't say he went to Harvard Law School. He went to Harvard Law School, finished at the top of your class or near the top of your class. We don't have to get into that detail now, but uh, something like that. My view is that uh, if people ask me where I went to school, I say I went to Harvard. I don't, I don't play those passive aggressive games. I'm certainly open to you know, other people from other schools who do. Yeah. Um, did, was that a question? Yeah, you did ask me a question. Really. All right, back to, back to me. Charlie, uh, you and your firm were early on in embracing a different concept in private equity investing. And it you know, has become much more commonplace um, in, in the past two decades with New Heritage remaining a leader. Why don't you talk about what that approach is and how the heck you guys got there so early? We focus on a very kind of narrow niche in the market. We only invest equity capital. We're a traditional private equity fund whereby we raise money from pension funds, endowments, uh, and the like. We invested over a period of time and look to sell those businesses that we invest in for obviously more than, that, than, we, uh, than we spent on them. The model, as you all probably know, it's a 2% management fee and 20% of the profits. You know, 90% of the market invests other people's money into private cap companies and look to grow them and uh, bring on best and brightest operators to help them grow these businesses and then to sell them uh, uh, three to five years or so after they've invested in them. We believe that, um, which is ironic, back in the late 90s, that there were way too many people chasing too few deals. I'll tell a story to some of our junior folks and they'll ask me like, wait, when did that happen? And I said, well, that was like in 1991 when I was traveling around the world. And then they quickly point out that they weren't alive then, to which I quickly point out I have t-shirts older than most of the people that I work with. But anyway, um, we think that there's a, a, an inherently a better way to invest equity capital, which is when the insiders, the founder owners of these private companies are interested in a significant reinvestment back into their business. That idea is, a, is, is commonly held by most, right? It's, you know, they want owners to not take all the money off the table, but roll 15 to 20% into the deal. Again, so alignment of incentives are important to most investors. But what we do differently is that we'll allow the founder owner to maintain control post-close. But in a nutshell, we provide liquidity of a control deal with the control provisions of doing a minority deal. Because at the end of the day, money is the ante to play the game. It's what you're going to do and how you're going to win the confidence of the business owner so they choose you at the end of the day. Obviously, headline valuation is going to be the biggest piece, as I say, to the objective pie. So whatever that's 80 to 90% value is the most important, but there are also softer pieces like terms and conditions and partnership rights and all that other stuff that matters to people. And that's where we spend our time trying to identify, not doing every deal out there, not trying to be all things to all people, but just really trying to market and focus to a select group of people that are interested in that big reinvestment. I would I say, oh, I'm sorry, this, you, you, uh, no, what I was about I to say was you enough, off. More. you did, and I, what I was about to say enough about me, Andy, tell me, um, what do you think about me? No, that wasn't my question. Um, so Andy, you too, one of the things that we've learned from middle market musings is it's evolved into the quest for differentiation, right? The market is immensely fragmented. What do you as an agent, what do we do as a principal to stand out from all the other people out there that are doing the same things? So you identified a niche yourself 
and which makes us, you know, interesting bedfellows, so to speak, that, you know, we do something differently because we want to try to carve out our own niche yet uh, as principals. But as an agent, you saw an unmet need in the market as well. Why don't you share with us what that is? Does that okay. sound, I say that dripping with sarcasm, but I, honestly, I think it's kind of, I think it's, it's a fun conversation. It's, I know, so that, out, that, it's so outside my comfort zone to be that polite was a, and nice a to great you. Great bridge to the moment 40 seconds from now when you say, okay, we've heard enough of you on this. Sure. All right, in 10 seconds, go. So uh, one trend that you know you and I have talked about many times has been the movement toward greater industry specialization. It seems more relevant to the business owner than others, but it almost always gets their attention. And, and so as an investment banker, I saw that the world was changing in that way. And I really wasn't interested in becoming a vertical investment banker, as we say. So rather than solving for industry, I solve for type of deal. Uh -huh. Greenberg Variations Capital focuses on the subset of deals that are not being widely uh, marketed, where there's one buyer in mind or a handful of buyers. So the, the uh, clients don't need and don't wanna pay for buyer identification, buyer qualification, writing a big book, book to educate uh, parties who aren't familiar with the business. And we're able to just home right in on providing the advice they need to execute and get a deal done. So that has been, since you asked, uh, my path to differentiation. Yeah. Um, first of all, we got to tighten it up. That was a little bit too long of an answer. It was a good answer. Well, you we know got to tighten it up a little bit. But um, you, 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 yeah, yeah, your, your answer was the bottle of success. 100%. I think we should... Uh, Turn it back to Keaton. I know they have. He has some questions, and then hear from the group. Thank you, guys. That was both insightful and hilarious. Um, so, do have a few questions for you. Two of them will be asked by myself, two by Will. Um, but to start off, so I know you're both very busy guys. A lot going on in life. So, what ultimately made you decide to invest the time into starting the Middle Market Musings podcast together? And what are your long-term goals for the podcast? Well, I'll jump into that first. I um, just we're always very externally focused in terms of how we're trying to uh, communicate with a select group of uh, trusted advisors to private equity to uh, private businesses, and it's kind of like brand management where they say you have to hit the consumer eight different times before they reach for the the product on the shelf at the grocery store. We believe that you can never rest on your laurels. You always want to try to find a way to cut through the morass to get your message out to talk about a little bit about what you do, kind of like what we're doing right now. And so I talked to Andy about this uh, probably about eight years. No, it was probably five years ago. And then we had, we had lunch once a year at the same conference. And uh, I think on the third anniversary or second anniversary of him, where I shared the idea behind the podcast, he's like, have you started this bloody podcast you keep talking about? It. I'm like, God, no, I got to get I got to get my arms around it. But I can barely turn on my laptop much more than figure out how to like launch a podcast. And he said, well, let's do it together. And I said, oh, really? That would be kind of really you want to do it with me? And I said, no, I said, no. And then I was like thinking about it. I'm like, you know what? I, I do think that from uh, when you have a conversation, think about it. It's just instead of being static, it's dynamic. It's three people versus two people. And the give and take can be a lot more fun. Plus, Andy is a. Uh, you know, I do give him credit. He is a very out of the box thinker when it comes to marketing and thinking about how to get his message out there. And I think that at the end of the day, 
said, you know what, let's give it a go. And whatever, 21 or 22 podcasts later, uh, we continue to get really great feedback, not only from the market, but our investors and people love, you know, something different and, you know, talking about something different and uh, doing it in different ways. And my long-term goal, well, I still have had my wife or any of my children listen to it. 30 seconds of one of my podcasts. So maybe my my goal would be to have everybody sit down around the dinner table and have them listen to one of my podcasts. But that might be too of ambitious of a goal, but we'll see. My uh, younger son is 15. I uh, often pick up after school, after wrestling practice. He got out of the car once and I was listening to the end of one of the podcasts that we were about to air. And you know, he listened to like the last uh, three or five minutes of it. And then he looked at the console and, you know, as time ran out and he said, there's 45 minutes of this. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're, you're never, you're never a prophet in your homeland. We have always had this kind of, you know, kidding, not kidding, bannering uh, relationship. But I think a common way of looking at, uh, our industry and, and impatience with uh, with people who uh, do things just because it's always done that way. And, and so when we got into it, we were really resolved to um, have a discussion different from, you know, more conventional dry discussions. You know, what are you seeing? What's your deal volume? You know, what are the breakpoints in, in deal size? You know, we touch on that a little bit, but, you know, you all and others can judge how successful we are. I, I mean, Charlie, I don't, I, don't, I don't think we've ever talked about it in, the, in this way, but the, the one constant in the podcast is our relationship with one another. And I think I made the observation that he would just have more fun doing it with someone else and establishing that relationship as, as a constant. That has an, an analogy in our business, in his end of it and mine, that when you meet clients, um, you know, if you're in Charlie's position, you're meeting a company management, as they're getting to know you, the first relationships they're, that they're observing are your relationships with your peers, your partners, other members of, of, uh, of, of your team. So I think intuitively, we have this idea that understanding those relationships and being able to put them forward in a reliable way is part of being an effective financial professional. You're listening to Middle Market Musings, brought to you by New Heritage Capital and Greenberg Variations Capital. Shifting the scope here a little bit, I would love to hear what you guys think of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's caused a plethora of macroeconomic disruptions. I'm curious, which of these do you see as more short-lived and which you think will be sticky and be, be here for the long term? Thank you. Well, we, you know, we, we know as much as the next person. Probably, about, le probably less. <laughs> you know, not that either one of us is, is shy about, about sharing our, our point of view. There are some quite specific effects of Russia's terrible invasion of Ukraine, if I can offer a little political uh, opinion, effects on energy costs, on supply chain, uh, on financial reporting as a result of the, you know, the, the crackdown on the, uh, the Russian uh, oligarchs. 
and uh, you know, it's anybody's guess how how long those kinds of effects la uh, last. I'm more comfortable saying that it, it seems pretty clear that we're in a period where there will be more use use a financial term more non-diversifiable systemic risk than we've been accustomed to. Now that it, you know, risk factors not associated with any one business or any one industry, it looks like there will be a succession of interest rate increases over the course of this year to control inflation. Uh, we are seeing inflation levels we haven't seen in a generation. Indigestion in the supply chain is not gonna go away anytime soon. Labor shortages, wage pressures are going to be with us for uh, for for a while, uh, and then you know you have the political and the military unrest around the the world. Finance is about appropriately pricing risk, and uh, I think it it will be part of the work that we all do in the coming years to understand those broader systemic risk factors in you know looking at different client businesses and and investments um <clears throat> the only thing i'd add is i i don't i don't really know well i mean i i think that uh, as thomas friedman said the only thing more scary than a vladimir putin with unbridled power is a cornered putin who feels power is being taken away from him so that's the thing that worries me more than anything else and you read this weekend that you know one of the moscow journals saying that they consider the sinking of the moskva um, as the start of World War III, their words, not ours. I mean, if that doesn't make you sit up in your chair, I don't, I don't know what does. But I mean, I, I am often reminded and I often say, to me, it's remarkable how robust and um, the, the middle market is in, in the United States primarily when I say that, because that's the world that we know. But when you think about, you know, we've all lived through, we're in the now year three of a global pandemic. Uh, we are talking about a ground war in the second largest country in Europe. We have rising interest rates. We have supply chain challenges, the likes of which we haven't seen in a long time. Yet, the market continues to chug along. A huge amount of equity, unabested equity, uncalled equity capital, uh, lots of liquidity in the leveraged loan markets. So you have the demand and the supply. Uh, what does that mean? Maybe it maybe it means that some of the valuations that uh, people have modeled on the exit um, may you know the, the the exit multiples may not come to pass, and that infringes upon your returns. But the interesting thing about private equity too, guys, it's a it's a long cycle, right? It's five years in, five years out in terms of the the timing, and private equity still represents and grows each year uh, a larger and larger part of institutional capital investors portfolio and whether or not that is at 500 basis points above the S&P or 300 or 800 basis points there's still I believe always going to be allocation now you can argue about you know is it the top you know first and second quartile will get those allocations because there's so much demand and there are so many players they continue to fund private equity firms you know in all four quartiles so I, I don't know. The end of the long story short, I, you know, our mud puddle continues to do well. We're not naive enough to think that bull markets go on forever. We do compete with a lot of private equity investors 
that have only operated in a bull market where everything goes up and to the right. Now, we know that is not going to be the case, but we also know bull markets don't just die of old age, right? Something has to happen. Um, yes, there was obviously a major pullback for six months during COVID, but look at where the market has gone since then. So it's been, uh, it's been undoubtedly, uh, if, what an incredible time to be alive. Oof. So Charlie, shocker, but I'm about to go to an even bigger picture view of this question. Okay. <laughs> I worry more about the functionality of, uh, of our society and, and other Western industrial countries than I do about the functionality of the capital market system. The COVID experience exposed a lot of fault lines, but one is the, the difference in experience that uh, you know more educated, more affluent, more concentrated in cities individuals have versus the, the opposite. Charlie and I do this for a living. You know, we meet in person, we get on Zoom and we talk to, you know, to, to other people about deals. It's a very different experience than working in a classroom, a hospital emergency room, a poultry processing line. We, we have kids uh, about the age of, of you all. And you know, what I worry about for my kids is they're continuing to do well, but our, our society seeming stable enough and fair enough and working for a larger number of people. And I, I, I look at all this tumult and I worry more about that than I do about uh, returns on private equity. I'm not sitting home alone just worrying about multiples and uh, exit multiples and entry multiples and where the next deal is coming from. I mean, God, yeah, there's always a greater good out there. And um, I, I am a voracious reader of news. I need to read more books. I just, I feel like all I do is read the newspaper, which can cause you to go down a rabbit hole and feel either really good or really bad, depending upon what the newspaper says. But um, I agree with what you said, Ben. I think you need to read more briefing materials on middle market producing as guests. Probably. Or I should listen to what you say. I just, whenever you start talking, I get my phone. Uh, I'm a little bit hesitant to ask this next question because I feel as though I'm, I'm tossing you each a meatball to, to make a pun at the expense of the other. Okay. Uh, but you're, you're both highly accomplished individuals. I'm just curious, out of the many accomplishments you've both made respectively, which are you most proud of and why? My friendship with Andy Greenberg. Actually, that's a joke. I know you didn't probably get it, but... Uh... <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, I, I think that uh, I often say if I was really, really smart, I would do what these amazing business owners that we invest behind do, right? Have an idea, take risk, raise capital, employ people, pay taxes, grow businesses. And I often look at people like that as like, man, those are the real heroes. Those are the people that are, again, employing people to allowing people to go home and provide for their families. Um, and the best part about my business is meeting those types of individuals and understanding their you know, goals and dreams and their objectives. I wish I had that in me, but I don't. And so instead, me and my partners try to find those individuals to invest behind. It gives uh, a great sense of, of uh, fulfillment to look around our table. We're a small group of 15 people. Uh, I'm the second oldest person around the table, which sometimes shocks me and I forget that. 
Uh, but, you know, been doing this now into our third decade. And to look at those guys and know that we've had some have had some success. Uh, and I think we built a team that really enjoys working with one another. And that is outside of, you know, my job as a dad and as a husband, there's no question that is, you know, the thing I've, I'm most proud of. That's that was a long pause to suggest that now it's your turn to talk. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, well, uh, G GF data stands out as you know something that uh, Graham Frazier and I started. You know, in the in the purest entrepreneurial spirit, we're two deal guys in suburban Philadelphia looking for something that we could get into that was less uh, spiky, less lumpy. Than the transactions business and you know over 15 years we developed this product which was a you know become a a good reference point for private company valuations and you know view of the of the market and i think it has a, a good home now with uh, the association for corporate growth which is the big trade association in our industry but it also, you know, we, we had some outside investors and, and it really relates, Charlie, to, to what you were saying. It, it gave me more relief and satisfaction than I expected in selling the business to see them get a good outcome. The responsibility, whether you're investing in a business or you're, you're attra attracting money from institutional investors, I think if you do your 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 job well, you take it as a pretty solemn obligation to make good use of money that other people entrust you with. So it was uh, rewarding to see that work out okay. So final question here, what are some of the skills and qualities that have made you successful to this point in time? I'm guessing, you know, slight humor might might carry you a far way as well. I've really enjoyed the banter here today. So I'm that, that had to be addressed to me. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we, we just, uh, we taped a great interview with a woman named Jerry Harmon, runs a big junior capital fund. And we talked a lot about emotional intelligence. I, I think that the, the cluster, of, cluster of qualities that come with that, understanding that your opinion is underrated, being right is underrated, you know, being able to listen to other people, work with other people, read the room. You know, I, I'd like to think I had some of those skills starting out. But there's, there's no doubt that I've developed more of them as I, I've gotten older. And, and then the, the other skill is resilience. Business is full of setbacks, failures, frustrations, people who tell you what they're going to do, and then they do exactly the opposite. And, and you know, being able to roll through that with your instincts intact, your judgment intact, and be able to apply it every day, knowing that other, other people do not see it as their life's work to make your job easy is uh, a very valuable. I, I have found that to be a very valuable skill. Well, thanks, Max. Uh, I guess it will be hard for me to follow up that, uh, those comments, but I would say um, I, I really do believe that, um, and it, were you to walk along our hallways, we look for one real one really important characteristic, and that's humility. Um, and look, we I spend more time with people I work with than I do my family, and I'm not proud of that. 
it's lessening a little bit now as I get older, but you know, you have to make this big commitment and God, man, it would really suck if you didn't really like the people you work with. And the one common theme that I think we all have is it's an incredibly flat, uh, you know, operational structure. But if you think you have all the answers, man, this is a tough industry to be in because there are a lot of really, really smart people. As I say that it's like an industry of class presidents. It's really hard to stand out. And the I was saying earlier that the money is the ante to play the private equity game, but also is IQ. And I do think building off what Andy said, the EQ piece, I think is really important to to listen and to anticipate. And, you know, particularly with us, where we try to structure deals in a creative way that others don't. And um, that ability to 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 listen and be creative and be humble. You know, I don't give a crap where anybody that we work with goes to school. I care that they're a good person. I care that I can trust them. I care that they are committed and are hardworking. Uh, and humility is really, really important because when you get in front of a, a, a CEO, a 50, 60-year-old individual that has created a nice business that we're interested in investing in, he doesn't care where you went to college and he doesn't care where and if you went to business school. He cares about if you are who you say you are and you do what you say you're going to do. And I think that's the most important thing that for us all to, re to remember. Just in terms of what's happening now with, with Twitter and Elon Musk getting involved, today in a journal, there was a talk about potentially some private equities getting involved, right? So like Tomo Bravo, um, Apollo is considering getting involved. And it's, it doesn't feel like it's driven, profit-driven. It's kind of like based on what you were just talking about, are they trying to make the world a better place or, you know, is this political? Why do we see private equity being interested in tw Twitter all of a sudden? I don't, I, I, whenever Elon Musk or anyone else talks about doing something in business for a reason other than making money, I want to sit on my wallet. No, I mean, business yet, you know, Everything that we're talking about is, is, is true and companies satisfy other objectives. But uh, the, the purpose of investing is to yield an optimal return for the investors. So, you know, we, I mean, we have lots of discussions on the podcast about ESGI or ESGI investing. And it means lots of things to, to different people, but I, I'm struck by the fact that even the investors who come in who are most committed to it never give away the concept of optimizing returns. They always talked about doing that, you know, within the context of getting top dollars. So I don't really know what these private equity funds are up to. And, uh, you know, I mean, I guess, I, I guess they were the Wall Street Journal. They've got us talking about them. Maybe that's the answer. I don't. I don't know. I. I personally fascinated by Elon Musk, and he definitely falls into that category of people I admire from the standpoint of taking risks, employing people, paying taxes. Even though he likes to pay a little less in taxes than he maybe he should, but I, I think he's. Uh, he's arguably, you know, the greatest entrepreneur of our generation. Yeah, per personally, you and he give you give off very similar vibes. Do I? That's cool. <laughs> uh, Charlie, I know you had mentioned that. Um, Institutions have been increasingly increasing their positions in private markets and private equity. And this comes with good reason, as private market returns have generally outpaced public markets over the last couple of years. 
And this definitely, at least in my opinion, has the potential to attract to attract a lot of unorthodox investors, specifically retail investors, to the private market space. And with that being said, what are your guys' outlooks on the democratization of the private markets in the future? Well, I think it's already happening. When something happens like that, I would argue that it's going to continue. So you have large, you know, mega cap firms going public, Blackstone, KKR, Carlyle, among many. Um, and my gut would suggest that that will continue to uh, eventually, and we know public markets move in cycles, windows opens, windows closed. But eventually, I would imagine that more kind of the mid-cap private equity firms would think about exiting to the public markets as well. I do, you know, and that that kind of thesis holds true with a lot of GPs. So as you guys know, I'm, uh, private equity firms are general partners. Limited partners are the, those invest in general partners. More and more um, investors are coming in and buying, monetizing, and buying 10 to 15%, 20% of these GPs, like these big, big multi-billion dollar asset managers that are coming in and allowing the founders of those private equity firms to monetize. So their founders' equity, they're getting cashed out. So that's the one thing about private equity. Succession can be a little bit messy, right? You start this firm, you take this risk, you employ these people, but how do you get paid for what you've created? And a lot of these large firms coming in and buying whatever, 5 to 20% of these um, these private equity firms is an interesting avenue for those founders to get equity. Um, and that started off by focusing up market on the bigger um, players. And now that's starting to you know drift down market. And you know, more of the kind of the billion to two billion dollar funds are selling out five to ten to twenty percent of their of their business. So um, that trend suggests that eventually you could see more and more private equity firms going public um, as a means to get liquidity for their founders' equity. Um, but that would be my general guess. And you know, I'm not sure, Alex, if your question is more just in terms of how you price risk and do a credit invest. You know, a credit investor is really have only been the ones that if you're investing in a general partnership, you have to have a certain amount of liquid net worth and, uh, uh, and other, other uh, metrics of, 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 uh, of wealth to have the ability to invest in these businesses. But I do think, again, I get back to the efficient market piece, which is um, you know, more and more of these firms are going public. It's becoming more and more, uh, a lot of the information that is being reported is readily available. Um, so I would sense that that's not going to change. And if anything, it's going to become more and more available to retail investors. You mentioned really, you know, about uh, ownership and these founder owners. So, you know, dating back when you, know, you first started your business, what really did you see in these, you know, owner founder entrepreneurs that made you kind of change what the market was really going at? And what can you know, the people on this call and listening to this podcast really take away from what you were seeing in those individuals? Thank you. Yeah, um, great question. It is all about the management team. And I, don't, I think you'll be have a hard pressed time to find a private equity investor who doesn't feel that way. We pick our partners really, really carefully. And so that's a lot of time in the front end, making sure that we're simpatico in terms of how they see the next three to five years playing out. You know, some, we have a lot of people that will say, meet a great, you know, great person, great business, 
He's like, I want to pass my business on to my son. He's the next second coming to Jack Welch. And we're like, yeah, not probably the type of person we want to partner with. So we're not looking to do all deals out there. We're looking to do one to two new platforms a year. But really what it comes down to, Reagan, is just that fire in the belly, that maniacal focus that we often talk. Everybody talks about leverage buyouts. We talk about leverage buy-ins. And what that means is that we want to buy into the view and the vision uh, of that founder who says, left to my own devices, I know I can double or triple my business over the next, uh, in, in the future. Left to my own devices, it might take me 10 to 15 years, but I think with the right partner, capital partner and thought partner, I can do it in three to five years. So that's what we look for. And I always say that the big flag, when we get into discussion with these business owners, if they say to us, you know what, I want to sell more of the equity and roll less, that's a huge red flag to us because to us, the greatest tell if you're poker players are people that let their uh, guard down when it comes to being long-term bullish. We want the person that says, I want to sell less today and earn, own more tomorrow after we close because I believe so much in the inherent you know, growth of this business. And so that's what's really important to us. It's all about that vision and being long-term greedy, not just short-term greedy. Kind of going back to the very beginning where we talked a lot about quest for differentiation, um, something that came to my mind right away was the venture capital firm Sequoia Capital. Like, I wanted to hear your guys' opinion on their new fund structure where they can actually choose to keep their investments for after the lifespan of their fund. So normal fund, five, 10 years, they can keep it for longer than that in order to kind of maximize their future returns if possible. Um, and I wanted to hear your perspective on you know, over the next 10, 15 years, as all these fund managers are searching for this quest of differentiation and possibly suffering um, maybe from premature exits, um, do you think that this kind of new fund structure could make its way into private equity? Um, and kind of your thoughts on that. Do you want me to, why don't I start off on that one? I mean, it's, it's already happened to less of a degree than many people would have predicted eight, 10 years ago with rising valuations, there's a lot of pressure on the whole period for a private equity fund. A typical structure for a private equity fund is a 10-year duration, a seven-year investment period, and, the, and then the opportunity to extend for a couple of years. And so with private equity funds paying more for businesses, there's a lot of expectation that a whole period of five years, you know, that zooms around really quickly. So the, the, the long hold fund has a couple of private equity funds that have done it, but it hasn't taken hold in the way that uh, people in the industry uh, expected. Uh, similarly, there's kind of a, a perennial feeling that now is the time that family offices are going to get more traction because they're not limited by the holding period requirements of outside investors. And it's always a little bit true, but you know, family offices never get quite the dominant position that people expect. So, you know, my observation as a banker, so dealing with a lot of funds, is that it is in private equity, it's continued to be uh, kind of a point of pride to be able to 
generate satisfactory returns by being adaptable within the existing fund structure. Uh, the only thing I'd ask, I think what you're referring to, Ian, is um, a recycle provision, or I think that's what you're referring to, which allows a GP, if they have an asset they really like and they think that it's got, uh, you know, they've owned it for five years and they've done very well, they have the opportunity to create a, a sidecar, for, you know, a successor fund that whereby it will just host as a special purpose vehicle just that one investment. That'll allow them to uh, cash it out for. It, there's always some valuations issues because you have some selling shareholders and the new shareholders in the new fund that'll allow them to recycle those proceeds back into the fund and to hold it for a longer hold time. I, I think that's what you're talking about, right? I don't know what Sequoia does, but um, that that concept over the last year and a half is been I get more and more phone calls from people that want to talk about and it's this fund formation group um, inside mostly placement agents who are the ones that raise capital for private equity firms is that they want to talk to you more and more about creating continuation vehicles or recycle provisions to allow you to do that um, and I, I think in the right instance that certainly you know makes a lot of sense um, but a lot of these things you know, like most things move in cycles. Remember two years ago when SPACs were all the rage? Well, what is the SE, you know, that peaked and everybody raised a SPAC fund and now it's getting more and more onerous uh, with the new rules that the SEC put out. So I think that all this, the flavor of the day right now are these recycle provisions or continuation funds. Um, I don't know how long it'll last, but I, again, I think in the right situation for your, it might make sense for your investors. It just is really case by case. I, I have to say it, it has been one of the most enlightening and certainly the most hilarious events we've ever held before. I want to thank both Charlie and Andy for taking the time to join us and then being able to share your insights with us. It's a pleasure, guys, and, and uh, grateful to have been included. And I'll just say I give you a lot of credit for you know finding something that you're interested, interested in and doing this and sitting and putting on a tie and talking to two clowns you've never met before. But the one thing I'd say is wherever you're going to go from here, um, what my dad said to me, and I carry it to me with this day, is that you're going to meet a lot of really interesting people and a lot of, politely said, less interesting people that don't have your best interest at heart. Don't ever lose your confidence because if you have your confidence, and there's a big difference, as we know, between confidence and being cocky. But if you have confidence and you believe in yourself, I say to my kids all the time, if you don't believe in yourself, nobody else is going to. Start with yourself. Focus on Whenever you have an informational interview or you're going into an interview or you're going to test, just prepare, 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 and believe in yourself. And, you know, it may not always be a straight line, but don't lose faith in yourself. Work your ass off. Ask questions. And uh, grateful to have had the time to spend uh, that we did today. Yeah, thank you, guys. It's always it's always great to be with you, Charlie. Uh this, this, this added yet another brick to the vast wall of our friendship. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of Middle Market Musings. We'd like to extend our sincere thanks to the Delaware Private Markets Club for joining us today, as well as to our sponsors, Greenberg Variations Capital and New Heritage Capital, as well as our media partner, Private Equity Professional Digest. Thanks as well to our editor, Jason Sapolo. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, we encourage you to like and follow Middle Market Musings on Spotify, Apple, or whichever provider you use to access podcasts. And of course, feel free to share with your friends. 
Thanks again, and we look forward to catching you on the next one.